Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well... That's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble with exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, this is Eric LeMay, a host on the New Books Network. Today, I interview Richard Swartz. His friends know him as Dick, and while this is my first time speaking with him, I can't help but feel friendly toward him. Dick is the creator of Internal Family Systems, or IFS, an extraordinary and paradigm-shifting therapeutic model that changes not only the way we envision healing, but also the person being healed. Full disclosure, I am currently working with a therapist who uses an IFS approach, and it's been healing and revelatory, which is why I'm very excited to share this conversation with you, where we explore personal and cultural healing, the innate goodness of our humanity, and our connection with one another and the world around us. Dick is the author of several books. He's taught around the world. He's the founder of the IFS Institute, which offers resources and training for professionals and for the general public. And he's just written the new book, No Bad Parts, Healing Trauma and Restoring Wholeness with the Internal Family Systems Model. Enjoy my conversation with Dick Schwartz. Dick Schwartz, welcome to the New Books Network. Thank you, Eric. I'm honored that you're you have this interest in my work. I do, I do. I do. Um, and you have you have this new book, No Bad Parts: Healing Trauma and Restoring Wholeness with the Internal Family Systems Model. And I was hoping we could start maybe with with this question, which is internal family systems, IFS. Um, it is now a global phenomenon. You started working on it back in the 80s. Um, it's spread around the world. From what I hear, um, trainers are lined up by the, the thousands to get in to start working with, with the, the model that you've developed over the years. Um, so... So this isn't a, a new modality or therapy that's that's just kind of coming to the forefront. You've been working on this for decades. So I'm very curious, 
what is the work that you want this particular book to do in the world when, when so much is already happening with IFS in the world? Uh, yeah, that's a good question. I haven't been asked before. Um, so as you say, I've been at this a long time. I'm very old, actually. I'm 72. So uh, it's been a long slog, although full of lots of exciting discovery. And, uh, and yeah, I would say the last decade or so, the model has taken, taken root more widely. And with that, I always had a vision that it wasn't just a psychotherapy, that it actually could uh, produce change at a lot of different levels in our culture. And so one of the motives was to try to, to reach the public directly with it. And then a second motive, because in the book, I, I try to touch on a lot of themes that are related to bringing it to other places and uh, also come out of the closet more about the spiritual side of it. So uh, that was really the goal was to not didn't have space to go into depth about a lot of these topics, but uh, to be able to to show some of the potential of the model uh, to to the general public for a bunch of different areas. Well, well, maybe we could start with one of those, um, which is that there there are these epigrams that open the book, um, and in one of them. Um, the quote you choose, it, it's talking about a, a cultural and spiritual transformation, that that's what is ultimately needed. And I think the, the book um, invites that. Uh, so, so, you know, could you tell us a little bit about, like, what might IFS offer if we think about it not just as a psychotherape- psychotherapeutic um, mode, but as a cultural and a spiritual mode for, for transformation and healing on that level. Yeah. As, as I uh, try to make the case in the early parts of the book, IFS represents a different paradigm for understanding human nature and, and the way the mind works and not only different, but much more, much less pathologizing and much more empowering, uh, understanding of the mind and and for me everything starts with how you understand human nature in terms of how people relate to themselves and to each other and uh, and how and what kind of a, a culture is possible so if you believe that you only have one mind and it it puts out these extreme thoughts and emotions then it's easy to see those thoughts and emotions as evidence of pathology and medicate yourself or uh, fight with yourself, try to ignore them or, or uh, yeah, go to war against them. But if instead you understand them to be emanations from parts of you that, that are hurting and, uh, and are frozen in time in the past and in 
when they're not hurting, when when they're released from the pain and, and other feelings they carry, are just really valuable inner citizens who, uh, once freed up, carry all these wonderful qualities. Then instead of what all the things I said in terms of how you might relate to them, you would start to to be curious about them at least, and then ultimately begin to love them. And and so it it really translates into a paradigm for loving oneself. And when you can love all these different parts of you, then you can love people who show up like those parts and you can see them as dominated by certain parts that aren't bad either, but are usually related to traumas in their lives. So all of that creates an enormous amount of change at every level, but also in addition, I stumbled onto this discovery that at our essence, we're all very uh, (laughs) kind of souls. We're we're spiritual uh, people. And I, again, just stumbled onto that discovery that there is inside of us this, what I call the self with a capital S, that has these great qualities that once accessed, uh, one of them is to know how to heal both internally and externally. And and that's a real game changer because if that is the essence of every person, which I, I uh, have tried to prove, then accessing that place before we, you know, try to negotiate peace treaties or whatever we're doing, that place that that has uh, calm and compassion, uh, all these eight C word qualities, calm, compassion, confidence, clarity, courage, uh, connectedness, creativity, clarity. That That's who we all are at our essence. And if we can help people access that, even when they're negotiating really difficult uh, things, because that C-word connectedness helps people realize that we're all connected at that level. We're all the same in some in some ways. And so that really reduces the desire to hurt somebody else. So anyway, I, I went on a, a long exposition here, but... Uh, I, I appreciated the question. Yeah, it's it's just to hold such a, or I'm not even going to say holds. I'm going to say IFS reveals this beautiful vision of of who we are, and that R is multiple, and that R is essentially good, um, and so so if you have that default and correct understanding of other human beings that you're engaging with or, or a sense of what a communal life could be. Maybe there's another C communal, um, that, that you can suddenly say, well, well, that's, that's where we should be. That's, that's where we are meant to be. And we just need to find our way there through this process that is, is very concrete, um, in terms of how you work with it. And, uh, and I just wanted to start off by giving our listeners a sense of the 
the range and beauty of this this vision um, of what it means to be human. I think of what it means to be connected to the earth and to one another. Um, and I think behind that, there's there's some unlearning that you teach in the book that I think would be very useful at least to touch on. Um, and you've mentioned one, it's it's something you call the mono mind, which is the sense that that we're we're singular um, and that the the mind's natural state is is not to be populated and multiple, but instead, you know, one singular self with one singular viewpoint. Um, and that at least in some of the traditions that you bring up, um, the default understanding of that self is that it's it's inherently corrupt or damaged or imperfect. Um, and what a different vision from the one that you've just given us. So could you tell us a, a little bit about the the unlearning that you want the book to, to take readers through? Yeah. Um, so both from uh, some religions and also from some psychotherapies, there is this, this uh, instilled belief that our, our true nature is evil or is minimally uh, selfish and that that's who we really are. And so when you think of other people that way, you're going to be a, a lot more suspicious and protective and you're going to um, relate to them from those parts. And what I call protector parts are contagious. So if I'm in my protectors talking to you, Eric, then it's going to elicit yours and we're going to have a protector-based conversation. Whereas if I can access this place I call self, which I feel mostly in right now, that also is contagious and we can have a totally different kind of conversation. And I'll give you one, one story about this. So I, some time ago, was asked to come down and teach IFS at a place called the Reformed Theological Seminary in Jackson, Mississippi, which was an evangelical uh, seminary. And I came down with some trepidation because I knew I'd be saying people are basically good, and they believed that the opposite, basically. And so I, we had some of those debates early on, and, and I said, but in the Bible it says man was uh, has the image of God within. And they said, yeah, that's in there, but it's covered over by all this sin, and there's so much sin that, it, that people don't really have much access to that. And I said, well, if you can translate sin for what I call burdens, then we're talking the same language. And burdens in, in my system are extreme beliefs and emotions that came into our system from either our direct experiences in life, negative experiences, traumas, and attachment injuries, or came down through the generations, uh, what we call legacy burdens, and enter our systems that way and attach to these parts and then drive the way they operate, almost like a virus, like the coronavirus. So if you could translate sin for that, then we're talking about the same thing. And they could go with that. 
And so a lot of our trainings are helping people learn how to unburden, how to send out all the the, the extreme beliefs and emotions, uh, the sense of worthlessness, the, the sense that they are bad, the, the sense that um, of terror and so on. And, and, uh, and then all the, what are thought of as the, the sins like avarice and greed and so on, all, sending all that out, all those extreme beliefs and emotions. And so, yeah, they still teach it down there. There was actually at one point during the training, the professor got up and said, you know, it's, I sort of kind of get what you're doing here because you're trying to get us to do in the inner world what Jesus did in the outer world, which was to go to the exiles in the culture and embrace them and bring them home and the lepers. And and uh, and so that started to make my, make sense to him. So, and uh, heal them. And heal them, exactly. Help them transform, them. yes. Yeah, I can see in that language that that the book would be called something like, you know, no sinners, only sins or something like that. Um, <laughs> right. <laughs> um, yeah, maybe it, it would be worthwhile to, to help orient a listener who, who hasn't had much familiarity with IFS to like, you know, I could imagine somebody thinking like, wait a second, wait a second, there's all kinds of bad out there. Um, so how do you make this distinction between there's no bad part, but there's certainly bad behaviors and bad actions? Um, or I guess in that that uh, that evangelical seminary that you were at, it would be like, how do you unburden the the not sinner from the sin that they've been you know kind of traumatized into reproducing um, or carrying or burdening. Yeah, well, the, the basic assumption, and again, this is in contrast to what you were saying about the mono mind, is that in a sense we're all multiple personalities. Not that we all have multiple personality disorder, but we've all had times where we're in a an intimate relationship and we get triggered and some part of us takes over and we wind up doing things that we know are making it worse, but we can't stop ourselves. So we all have these parts that aren't who we all, you know, aren't the totality of us or just one protective element of us. And what I learned, and, I, and everything I, everything in the book, and everything I'm saying now, I learned from clients. This didn't come out of my brain. It's just uh, I was lucky to have some very articulate clients in the early days, and then as I was learning from them, I tried it out on other people, and they got the same product. So, and what I learned was that it's natural to have parts and that everybody does and that that the negative valence that's been given them through psychotherapy mainly as being uh, signs that you're crazy. If you, if you hear voices, if you find yourself talking to yourself or that that 
is uh, not accurate. That it's actually everybody has this phenomena where you want to do something, and one part of you is saying "go for it," and the other says "oh, don't you dare," and you have this little argument going on in your head. Well, those aren't just two bundles of thought. If you were to stop and focus on one, you would hear all the reasons, and you would hear that it's not just a bundle of fear, but it also has a bunch of other feelings and is a little inner personality. And the same with the one on the other side. And, case, and that's just basically what I, was, I did in the beginning. And so came to the conclusion that it's a good thing that they're all, they come with us into our life at birth, either manifest or dormant. And they're all valuable. They all have these great qualities to help us get through life and, and thrive in life. But traumas and attachment injuries, which is basically bad parenting, and other kinds of ex life experiences force them out of their naturally valuable states into roles that can be damaging and uh, that they don't like most of the time. And but they kind of get frozen in time during during the trauma. So they live. They often, if you ask one of these parts, if I had you, Eric, ask one of your parts how old it thought you were, they would say you're five years old, and they'd be very convinced of that. And it's a big surprise to learn that you're whatever age you are, and that uh, you're not living in that same kind of danger that that uh, they're in now, or that, that they were in initially when they got this role. So, so that's uh, the basic premise that there are no bad parts and that uh, it's like kids in a family. You know, family therapy's big insight was you can't take an acting out kid out of that family and expect him to quit doing what he's doing just by telling him to. Instead, you have to understand the role he's been forced into by the dynamics of that family and change those dynamics so he's liberated from that role. And it's basically exactly the same with his inner family. Each of these parts are good, but they're in roles that can be quite damaging. They carry beliefs and emotions that can be quite damaging, both to the client or to other people. And so that's what's called evil. But that isn't who they are. And that's the big mistake that our culture and much of psychotherapy has made is to assume that they, these parts are the burdens that they carry. And when you think of them that way, then you don't have much choice but to try and get rid of them or ignore them. Yeah, and, and I think you've you said that a, a couple different ways, and I just want to underscore that mm -hmm. the part is not the burden and the burden is often one of the ways that we encounter the part or the primary way or the, or the way that the part feels that it has to work or they have to work in, in our lives. Um, and, and what I've found is that you can even take that further, that, that often the part does not even understand that what they are doing is burdensome and in fact, when you get a chance to understand 
what a particular part is doing that registers to you, you know, I'm 51 in my 51 adult self, um, and listen to them. You suddenly understand that the part believes that they are doing something beneficial for the system, you know, from a five-year-old's perspective or something like that, that they, they believe that they're protecting you. They believe that they're doing something usually when you can kind of get curious about it as you encourage that, that turns out to be kind of quite heroic, right? That they believe that they're protecting the system from a, a traumatized or limited understanding of, of what you as your composite self are going through. That's exactly right, Eric. And, and often their role was necessary during the trauma and, and that they do deserve to be seen as heroic because not uncommonly they did save you. And actually, you know, if we just apply it to one particular problem like addictions, so the, it, it's not uncommon as I was doing this to go to the addict part. And as I do it, I would just have you focus on that part and find it in your body and then I'd say, how do you feel toward it? And most people with an addict part say, I hate it because it's, it's, it's ruining my body or my relationships. And I would say, okay, well, that makes sense, but let's get the part who hates it to give us a little space so we can just get curious about it and learn more about why it does this. And if I succeeded in that and you were able to say, okay, I just, I, I'm interested in why it's doing what it's doing then I would have you ask that question and wait for an answer from the part. And most of the time, and, and the follow-up question to that is, ask it what it's afraid would happen if it didn't do this. And most of the time, the answer to that question is you would either feel a lot of pain or you might even, or you might die. And, you know, that doesn't make sense at face value, but if you explore it a little more, this, this part is like one level of protection and the next level up is suicide. So it's being quite honest when it says, if I don't keep you high and you feel this pain, you're going to commit suicide. So in a sense, it is saving your life. And, and uh, even though it's creating lots of chaos, and so as I started getting that and could help clients show a lot of appreciation to that, that what we call firefighter inside and, and then ask if you were willing, ask the part if it was willing to let us go to the pain and heal it and, and ask it if we could do that, if we could go to the pain and heal it would it have to keep doing this? And most of the time, these parts will say, no, but I don't think you can do that. And I would say, well, would it give me a chance to prove that we can? Because we absolutely can if it gives us permission. Because we don't do anything without permission from these protectors. And if it gives us permission, then we find the pain and there are about five steps to actually unburdening that pain and helping the part it's like a curse has been lifted. Part suddenly becomes 
happy, playful child a lot of the time. And then we bring in the addictive part to see that it doesn't have to protect this young one anymore. And now it's open to be to doing something entirely different. Because again, most of these parts don't like the roles they're in. They just think they're absolutely necessary. Yeah, I can I can really hear the kind of gentleness and compassion that you bring to parts as you're working with them to try to to help them through it. And I think what comes across to me is just this paradigm shift um, that you're inviting us to undertake where you see these, these parts that are part of you as whole beings and not just whole beings, but whole beings that are in relationship with other parts. Um, and then with the self that's, that's sort of orchestrating, um, the system and, uh, Maybe I'll just take a moment now to, to tell you that my first encounter with your book was, was not as a book, um, but was as the recording that you helped create with it. And, um, and I guess you decided not to read the prose, but to do the, the session sure. work yourself. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And so I was, I was listening to it, and I was just sort of deeply and profoundly moved, and then... Um, there's with within the audio recording you working with clients and you you kind of um, doing the work that you would do if you were sitting across from someone and helping them work with their parts and it's it's so profoundly moving to hear this um, because there is this idea of like the the intellectual sense of how this system might work and things like that um, but what comes across so clearly in hearing you interact with other people is just how full of an existence each of these parts has um, in concerns and desires in interrelationships. Um, and it's, it's just deeply tender and beautiful. Thank you. It really is. I, you know, I, I'm fortunate to spend much of my life in awe as I do this work with people because their parts are so beautiful and they they are so rich in terms of uh, being full full range personalities and and uh, very much like inner people and and the good news is I don't actually have to sort of convince people of something theoretical. It's when people do the work, they are, they just immediately start to experience this, and uh, because it is a phenomena, it's not something that I that is conceptual. Really, it's just um, I'm you know I consider myself a, a good scientist. I I got a lot of data and I just reported the data, even though it didn't fit the the paradigm that I was operating under, and that's continued to be the case. It's true, it, and I should stress that. I mean, I've encountered kind of you telling the the process by which IFS emerged, um, and it's very much a kind of. I mean, there's you being open enough and curious to see what kind of empirical data shows up in your office, um, 
but it wasn't as though you had some hypothetical model that you were going out to find. It, it's very much this kind of recursive process of, you know, listening to clients. And um, I think you're often very candid and stressing that like, I made these mistakes and I kept making these mistakes. And, and then I thought, well, what are the presuppositions that are resulting in this? And what if I adjusted? And it, it feels very much like this process of revealing rather than creating, if that makes sense. Yeah. I mean, it's been an amazing journey in that way because I think I had a big advantage over lots of people who explore intrapsychic process in that I had very free, few preconceptions going in because as a family therapist, family therapy was a kind of pendulum swing away from psychoanalysis and, and what were considered to be the excesses of that. And so we were trained not to think much about the interior world and to just trust that if we could change external systems, that would all fall into place, which I made the mistake of doing an outcome study to try to prove and found that it wasn't true. But I, so what I'm trying to say is that as clients started talking about these parts, which I had no clue about as I started, I didn't really know that I had them. I, I thought I had one mind and thoughts and emotions. Um, but as they started talking, first I got scared because I thought maybe they're sicker than I thought. But then I got curious, and again, I didn't have anything to ground this in except for the idea that maybe these are extreme thoughts and emotions, and uh, even though they were coming across as full entities. And so I made the mistake, as you're saying, of, of doing what most of psychotherapy still does, which is to try and get my client to fight with a critic, for example, or control the, the addictive part and so on, and, and try to sort of manhandle these parts. And uh, found that my clients were getting worse. And it took a couple shocking experiences for me to actually shift away from that coercive paradigm and instead just get curious about why these parts did what they did in the way I was talking earlier about the addictive part. And then once I got curious and could let go of, of all my preconceptions, then I really started to learn this thing of how they're, they're all real, <laughs> which is still hard. I mean, many people still think of it as a metaphor, uh, but no, they're quite real and that they have a whole lot to say and there are, there's a lot of wisdom in them, especially once they're released from their extreme roles. And uh, so it's it's has been a kind of incredible journey. And, you know, it's, it's quite something now to have it become so popular after all the, you know, I still have scars from being attacked in various places as I tried to bring it forward. I, I have no doubt I've had... Um multiple conversations with with people who who get curious or they'll be like have you heard about ifs and i'm like well yes <laughs> um as a matter of fact and then try to explain it and uh and yeah i think you come up against these um 
these paradigm shifts, the paradigm of the, the mono mind or the idea of the self or the idea that, um, that who you are is not only multiple, but, but kind of inhabited. Um, and, and ultimately I think you, you move outward to IFS revealing that, I mean, it has within it a kind of inherent cosmology of, you know, interconnectedness and oneness. Um, and so in, in kind of intellectually explaining it, um, I find myself moving very quickly into like, well, here's what, here's what the cosmology of IFS is. Here's how the individual fits into that cosmology. Here's how you understand, um, how culture works within that and, and everything else. Um, but to circle back to where we started, um, you know, I, I can understand why you're surprised given those impediments, maybe, um, to the, the default paradigms that are out there. And at the same time, what you've stressed many times is you're discovering something that's you're revealing something that's true about human nature. And so it doesn't surprise me that once people have, a language and a way of talking about it um, that's contemporary, that that suddenly it just starts to sing and ring with the truth that it carries. Yeah, and, and once people are willing to give it a try, it's more that that, uh, that convinces people because uh, I can just do some very rudimentary exercises with a large group and and people will come back quite amazed at what they learned by simply getting curious inside. So a lot of the problem has been that we haven't been oriented to focus inside ourselves with curiosity. And it really doesn't take that much to start to learn about this. It's, I've often felt like, um, I forgot in high school who we learned about, who discovered the microscope and, uh, all the shit he got from everybody. But but he was saying there listen, there are these inner worlds of these microbes in there. They're they're interacting with each other and they and they're alive. Uh, so Van Leeuwenhoek, I think maybe is the guy. What I love is that we're still fighting that battle that <laughs> scientists are still getting shit for saying there's a virus. Uh, that's true. And we, it's alive and it moves <laughs> in these ways. And uh, so that, that fight is not done. No, that's um, right. Surprisingly. Well, let, let, us, let us say that there is an, an empirically materialist-minded listener who's, you know, getting curious despite him, her, their, themselves, and, uh, and is curious about this, this evidence-based part of IFS. I wonder if you could tell us a little bit about the study you did in the the Journal of Rheumatology, um, because I think it will also take us into talking a little bit about the body, um, that this isn't just a psychic phenomenon, but that it has deep roots in in our bodies. Yeah, uh, I think it was about 15 years ago, we were blessed to uh, be able to do a study on rheumatoid arthritis and uh, at, at uh, Boston Women's Hospital in, in Boston and uh, and had there was a drug study that oddly enough had some extra money to do a therapy piece and 
And so we gathered together 30 rheumatoid arthritis patients and then had a control group who just got a kind of educational control condition of 30 and uh, and did, I think it was 16 sessions of IFS and of the control thing. And it was remarkable uh, in the sense that the the degree of change, not only in levels of anxiety and depression and things like that, but in the physical manifestations of the disease were enormous. And uh, to some, some people went into complete remission. And in looking back over what we did, these were uh, typically Irish Catholic uh, Boston mothers most of whom had never been in therapy before. And we simply had them focus on the pain in their joints and get curious about it and and get, ask what, what it was about. And in, in answering that question, they were hearing from the parts of them that hated the part that had dominated their life, which was this massive caretaking part that would never let them take care of anybody else, that is a product of patriarchy and is is and and Catholicism too in a sense and uh, and as we tried to work that out like a time sharing thing between the caretaking part and the the parts that want to have a life the, the symptoms started to go away and and that has held up. I mean, we do a lot now with physical symptoms. And I'm not here, I'm not trying to say that every disease is related to parts, because it's not. But uh, our parts know about our vulnerabilities. And if they need to get a message through to us, they'll, they'll use, in my case, asthma or migraine headache or something like that. Uh, and as I've done my work around both those things, I don't have those conditions anymore. But yeah, so I, I think I'm getting to what you're asking. Yeah, let me let me paraphrase it for listeners and see see if I get it right or wrong. But one of the ways that that I understood it was something like you know here are these women who have spent their life taking care of of other people to the neglect of themselves. Um, and, and that was driven by a part that was burdened, um, maybe the legacy burdens of, of misogyny and Catholicism of, of a certain kind. Um, and there were other parts that really wanted these women to, to live, to have a kind of self-care and you know, internal self-thriving as well. And the the arthritic symptoms that some of them were suffering was a way for those parts to say, "You're not paying attention. You're you're still doing the thing that's harming you." And so we're trying to speak to you through the pain in your your fingers or your knees ab- about what's happening. Exactly right. And and some of them would even say. If you keep doing this, we're going to cripple you, so you can't do it. 
you know, they, they, uh, they can be really pissed. So, yeah. So the moral of that story is, you know, if you've got some kind of physical, particularly autoimmune kinds of problem, then it doesn't hurt to just go and get curious about it and see if there is some parts element to it. And again, there may not be at all, but it never hurts to ask. Yeah. I I found IFS, I'll, I'll say this in the intro so listeners will have already have heard this, but, but um, full disclosure, I, I am very grateful to the IFS model and to the work you've done and to the IFS therapist I work with, Sydney King. Um, I had had a, a similar experience, which is that I had started listening to my body. Um, I had had cancer a couple of times. And so I think one of my experiences of that was really dissociating from my body and numbing out against it. Um, and I bring it up as, a, as an alternative example that I started to have these like interesting sensations when I tuned back in. I was like, my body does not feel the same way as it did when before I had cancer um, and, I, you know, I had like six surgeries and things. And, uh, and so I wanted to, to kind of tune into that. And so I went to, to work with Sid and it, it turned out that there were parts that were sort of alerting me to like things about my gender identity that, that I was unavailable to hear or that protectors were not letting me hear, um, before I had gone through this, this medical trauma and then got curious about what it meant and who it was on the other side. And, you know, what had initially brought me to that was, um, was Gabor Mate's work that I know you're familiar with of like when the body says no. And I got curious about like, what what my, 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 my body have been saying no to and how do I listen to it? Um, and this became like a way in, um, so I wanted to to sh- share this not only because I want to thank you for for making this kind of listening to parts possible, but also because there there might be, or there probably is, or I'd like to think that there is the alternative model, which is that if your body might be speaking to you, or your parts might be using your body to speak to you through through pain and disease, um, but there also might be other sensations. Um, that are, you know, provocative or interesting, that's a different kind of speech or a different kind of awareness. Um, but this idea that, that your body could also be a way of understanding your fuller self and connecting with those parts, um, because they're just not merely psychic, but they're also embodied entities. Does that make sense? Does that sound oh, right? Yeah. It makes a lot of sense. And uh, I appreciate your sharing all that, Eric, and I'm glad it was useful to you. And uh, and again, that is what I want to bring to people who've had experiences like yours. And I just I feel the need to keep reiterating that uh, it it isn't always true that there are parts involved in disease. And there certainly are such things as viruses and genetic things that you're going to have regardless of your parts. But um, but there, I've had enough experiences where when someone like you does this inner listening and learns 
what it's about and the gender issues uh, and work something out that the symptoms do kind of disappear. So uh, that's exciting to me. I, I was raised in a very medical family and I was a big disappointment as the oldest of six boys. Three of my brothers are high-powered physicians and uh, I just didn't have a head for it. And I was a big disappointment. And so it feels good to be able to come back to that field and with something to offer now. Yeah, I could see where that would be very gratifying. Yeah. Well, in the book, you're not only speaking to, to what IFS might have to say to psychiatry as we traditionally understand it, um, or to you know medicine as we traditionally understand it, again, according to those, those older paradigms um, or default paradigms, um, but there are some some beautiful things to say that you're you're speaking to about kind of the spiritual dimension um, and also the cultural dimension. You know, you had mentioned that IFS sh- shines a different kind of light on things like racism and patriarchy and individualism and materialism and xenophobia. Um, and so I'm, I'm curious as you you see this book moving forward in the world, um, could you talk a little bit about the spiritual dimension? Um, the book closes with this, this kind of beautiful admission you make that like, you know, one of the reasons I wanted to write this book is because your course of ISS has led you to a spiritual awakening. Um, and you're encouraged to con- continue seeing what that might mean. Um, for IFS and for yourself. And so I just want to invite that in and create space since that's that's both part of what's in the book, but the intention on which the book closes. Yeah, so that side of it has become increasingly uh, important and salient to me and personally, but also in terms of what I'm trying to bring. And that came partly as it increasingly dawned on me that what I'm calling self isn't uh, isolated to individuals, but that actually, a lot of different metaphors for this, but uh, could be, you know, quantum physics, they talk about a photon being simultaneously a particle and a wave, and that there's a wave state of self that's transpersonal, that that uh, we can access through meditating maybe or through psychedelics now, um, where you you feel this increased level of connectedness to everything uh, when you enter that state, to every person, but not just, to animals, to the earth, to what's called God, and that 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 state is right there. It's, it's, it's just there all the time. And that what I'm calling self is a particle of that, that uh, is in our body, has boundaries, and our bodies make it feel separate from each other. And, and that some of the work we're doing is, is really designed to get more access to that, that, uh, 
self as part of the wave. And when you get that, then you don't want to go to war against somebody because you know that you're doing that against yourself in one level. And so, yeah, as I've gotten that increasingly, uh, I've been increasingly interested in bringing that to the world, that that uh, larger sense of self as well, uh, as as bringing IFS as a method, and and I also took a take a look at some of the obstacles in a lot of the spiritual traditions to doing that, which include how people use spiritual traditions for what's been called spiritual bypassing, which is to get away from their pain by getting high that way. Uh, and, and also how sort of demonized the ego has been in many spiritual traditions as a, at best a past and at worst, a big uh, obstacle to, to nirvana, you know, and how what what's called the ego is really just a bunch of these, what I call manager parts that are trying their best to keep you safe and to remember all you have to do in your life and and uh, like that. So yeah, it was fun. It was actually fun and a little nerve wracking to put a lot of that into the book. Yeah. Well, I, I'm curious, you know, you, you spent a huge chunk of your professional career developing IFS. Um, and, uh, and now it's, it's become global in the last decade and um, more and more practitioners are taking it up and, you know, more books are being written um, with IFS in the title uh, that aren't written by you. And, uh, you know, every once in a while, Sid and I will have these conversations and she'll say, yeah, there are people, you know, doing this work in IFS and things like that. And I'm like, wow, it's really growing in huge ways, um, probably more than, than Dick imagined it ever would as, you know, more and more people take it up and more and more practitioners um, work with clients. And so I'm just curious about as you as you see this being, you know, your gift and your legacy as it grows, um, what your hopes are are for it, you know, in the next decade or or the next several decades. Um, I think we've hit on that a little, but I'm just curious. Uh, you know, here you are as somebody who in the '80s was like what is this phenomenon? And, and here you are in 2022 looking at people around the world practicing this method. Um, what do you imagine when you look into the future for IFS, you know, as it extends beyond you? Yeah. I, I uh, especially now that it's pretty established in psychotherapy, I've been thinking more along those lines of, how can we influence larger and larger systems uh, to to adopt this paradigm and and having and having increasing success at that and increasing opportunities and and this book, no bad parts has helped with that because um, lots of people are reading it and and then saying oh wow lots lots of influential people are 
like yourself uh, are calling and wanting uh, to collaborate. And so I'm getting increasing opportunities to bring it to very large systems. And, and that's the ultimate vision. Like in the next decade, you asked, um, if, if we can bring it, like I, I think I said earlier, self is contagious. And so if we can bring it to leaders in lots of different arenas and they can influence their organizations or uh, countries even to be more self-led, then a lot of the, it's all parallel. A lot of the polarizations that exist in our world will melt away the way they melt away when increasing amounts of self start to come into people's inner systems. And so, yeah, like I said, for me, it's all parallel. I've been fascinated by how similar things operate in the inner world and the outer world. And, and there's, you know, lots and lots of healing still to be, is necessary before that's possible. But I'm, I'm intrigued with the possibilities of collective healing now, and I'm trying more and more to have large groups of people come together and, and find the, the big legacy burden that we all have in common, like I've done that with racism, for example, and uh, uh, want to do it more with patriarchy and so on and help people in a collective way unburden that. And so far, the results have been quite remarkable because when you have a lot of people in self, it's just a lot easier for than you can then have than trying to do this kind of work individually. So it's a lot of those kind of thoughts about how do we scale this and and uh, you know as I said I'm pretty old so I, there are parts of me that feel urgency about it but there are also parts of me that feel like I paid my dues and it's time to have more balance in my life so I'm trying to weigh all that. That makes perfect sense. Um, I'm grateful for the work that you're doing. And and if it wasn't evident to the listener by now, since you said that a lot of people are reading this, um, I'm going to encourage people, maybe I'll encourage them to read it, and I will encourage them especially to listen to it, since that was how I first encountered it, um, which which will give them the chance to go through the exercises as you are leading them um, in the audio pace. And, and I think if, if they've been with us until now, they know that um, you were very generous and kind uh, in sharing your knowledge and, and your compassion for the parts that they will encounter when they undertake that. So I want to say, Dick Schwartz, thank you so much for being on the New Books Network and thank you for the work you've done and will do. Well, thank you, Eric. I, I've found uh, this to be quite delightful. I really uh, appreciate how deeply you, you've got the model, and I feel very appreciated by you. All right. Well, if another book comes out, I'm going to track you down. <laughs> oh, sounds good. All right. Okay. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. My name is Eric LeMay, and you've been listening to an interview with Richard Schwartz, author of No Bad Parts, Healing Trauma 
and restoring wholeness using the internal family systems model here on the New Books Network.